Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 42 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time finding us in the podcast sphere, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns. We're really excited to have thousands of tutor-minded listeners from all over the world. We've had an amazing time researching and imagining our story, and especially sharing it with you. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some Tutor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tutor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see the items we have for sale. So get a Do You Tutor tee or a sweatshirt and support the podcast at the same time. In our last episode, we saw Constance overwhelmed with her family's tragic past, but now we're leaving the guilt and religion behind, and entering into the occult world with Princess Cecilia. Mm, And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 42, The Arundel Inn, in which the alchemist lives up to his promise and Sir Francis Darrell to his word. The garb of Venus was the only choice, Cecilia thought. Her hair twisted and piled on her head, swept off her smooth forehead by a band of pearls. It was right to dress as a goddess. Was she not herself about to be granted immortality? Fortunate humanity! The light of her beauty would never be snuffed out. She had insisted to Mistress Arundel that a very large mirror be found at the inn and brought to her rooms. It served. Without it, she could not have examined the face that God had wrought for her. He had done well. Immortality would be hers at the moment when her cheek was smooth, her hair glinting, her body undeniable. She would not face the ages with girlishness hanging about her, nor with even the slightest overripeness to dull her radiance. The mirror was her great friend, and she could not resist giving it a little kiss with her eyes closed. When she opened them, she saw Master Delanois behind her. She would have caught his glance through the mirror, but he was looking down at something in his hands. She dismissed all the servants, almost unable to breathe in her anticipation. Is that it? she asked. She smelled something wonderful. Indeed, princess, he stuttered. Turning back toward the mirror, she spoke again. Step behind me and hold it up so it will seem to hover above my head. Dr. Delanoy's body was large, and the manner in which he folded himself, so that his reflection was obscured behind hers, was charming. He struck one long arm up in the air, holding a clock by the bottom. He rotated it in a circle and made a whistling noise that she thought must be the music of the spheres. Of course the elixir was stored in a timepiece. It was all as it should be. Victory filled her to see the promise, hovering there, the clock, time's relentless passage soon to be outwitted. Master Delanois had to change arms and his body popped into view. That disappointed. Cecilia turned. He had a hangdog look. Good doctor, what troubles you? He made a little bow yet again. The innocent young Angelo is here and my apprentice Richard both wait at the door. She nodded. She was ready. Master Delanoy cracked the door open, and Angelo shimmied in, his white-gloved hands holding a fistful of sage. The apprentice Richard followed, holding very large calipers that swung into the wall as he tried to get in. Behind him he dragged a bag of candles. 
He looked put out. There was no question. She did not like to see him make such a face to mar her moment, but she would forbear. The three men drifted to the window, and the apprentice pointed at the cloudy night with a look of concern. Master Delanoy was humble. Your grace, we must wait for moonrise, and the cloud cover is heavy. Her heart flooded with such warmth for him. Do not worry, sir. I can wait a little longer for eternity. The moon shall rise and shall cast her beams through the window. Make your calculations, dear doctor. Angelo placed the sage in the four corners of the room and took the precious clock. He stood aside as Delanoy and his apprentice wrangled the calipers. They pulled and pried, and finally Cecilia took it upon herself to show them there was a small peg that must be removed for the device to open. They were grateful for this, yet she knew their gratitude sprung from a deep well. She had chosen this nobody, this friendless Delanoy, to work the final miracle. How fortune smiled on him. The men grunted as they drew around her. Discarding the calipers, the apprentice began tossing the squat candles to Delanoy, who placed them along the circle. They were intent on their work. They dreaded the moon appearing before they had perfected their preparations. She was as quiet as the night sky. They need not fear her disruption. The apprentice disappeared out the door. Are you well, gracious princess? asked Delanoy. I am. Master Delanoy was staring at the sky. I hope that boy races. Water sloshed in the hall, and Delanoy ran to open the door for the lad as he staggered under the weight of two big buckets. Richard plopped them down near the circle and cast a baleful eye at Angelo's meditative form holding the clock. Master, I wish for Angelo's role. I am the elder. Age is of no matter, Delanoy said. Swear by your oath. Have you purity? The apprentice knit his brows. I swear I have more than many, sirs. Sir, impudence. That will not lead too far. Angelo must do it. The moon, cooed Cecilia. Angelo jumped into the circle with her. The others lit every candle, cursing and rushing as they did so. Richard took a bucket. Then the three men began to chant sounds so mysterious. Their voices ran up and down as if to summon the deep forces of life. The sound made Cecilia shiver. She watched in a silent frenzy as Delanoy and Richard made a full circle around her three times, then began again in the other direction. Master Delanoy fell to his knees, muttering and bowing his head on the floor, first towards the window and then towards her. His trance-like eyes made her spine tingle. He rose, and all three men glanced nervously between themselves. It was time. Cecilia knew this was the final moment of her mortal life. Angelo removed the beaker of elixir from the clock. She dropped to her knees and Angelo poured the elixir down her throat. It was thick and bitter and she had to will herself not to gag. But finally she heard herself screaming with power as immortality coursed through her. Richard threw the water, dousing the candles, and all was dark. She let it enfold her. She rose. Her feet felt weightless, and yet she knew she was now never to leave this earth. Master Delanoy lit a fire in the hearth. The apprentice and the no longer gloved Angelo began collecting the candle stubs and wiping the floor. Immortal Highness, are you well? asked Master Delanoy. I am past well, far, far past well. Yeah, sir, 
for your fine service. Cecilia threw an emerald ring at Delanois's feet. She was ravenous. She was daring. I have brought an asp. Angelo, the basket, beneath there, inside, there is an asp, as Cleopatra used. Master Delanois asked, Highness, an asp? Tis not an asp as you know it, Doctor. There was no time to get one from Egypt. It is an adder, not as poisonous, perhaps, but it shall stand the test. Angelo, she saw, was waiting for the nod from Delanois, who looked from the basket to her own person. Your Grace, I am not sure. I desire to act the most famous of deaths, knowing I shall never die. Shall I hold the asp as I fly from the window? It would be a flourish to the original. Oh, powerful lady, do, do not, I, I, I do not think this a fine course. I do not know if it is right to test the miracle. The saints honour humility. It is to their glory, doctor. Does it not attest to purity and mutability? I shall fall on my sword as Dido did. But I might sail and turn and throw myself into the fire. Her blood was dancing. She felt dizzy with her own happiness. Extraordinary princess. Master Delanois fell to his knees and kissed the hem of her skirt. I have forgotten to tell you how to seal the metamorphosis. Everything stood still. She collected herself. Hmm, a wrinkle. What must I do, doctor? You must go to where your mother rests. My mother, Margarita Lionheart. That very queen. And you must taste her dust. This is the only means to finish the great work. Eat the dust of a rotting mother. Such depth to the charge, such meaning, but it could be done. A little dynamite to her mother's tomb, she would do it. Return to the source that sprang her being. She would leave this meagre English isle and fulfill her destiny. But first, she would celebrate her plans by sharing a cup of wine with the mortal souls downstairs. Philomena was chortling as Sir Ralph finished up a tale about two townsmen at the inn who had convinced four women that they were four brothers, not two, and had run under cover of darkness from room to room to satisfy everyone. Oh, that is jolly, shall damn you to hell, Sir Ralph reflected. Would you run room to room deceiving two ladies? Philomena said. I would not. I would have to tire one to the point of sleep so that I could walk at my right pace to the other. Mistress Arundel, Cuthbert broke in, there is a gentleman here, the one you told me to watch for. Weeks of expectation had made Sir Francis Darrell over as fantastic, a manticore, or Geron himself with three heads and six legs. Philomena turned to Cuthbert, who indicated a gentleman in travelling garb, leaning against the wall, the image of Sir Thomas Wyatt. King Henry, belched Sir Ralph, raising a glass to Francis. Sir Ralph, quiet yourself, Philomena hushed. That lad is a likeness of King Henry, the finest man I ever set eyes on. A trim leg, broad shoulders, not an ounce of extra flesh stretching out his doublet, but by the end death had to run back to Hades to get a bigger shroud. Tell me, am I as fat as the old king? No, you are half his girth, Philomena lied. You must cover your eyes when you speak to that man at the door. I can see he is a cunny hunter, Sir Ralph said and then belched. Oh, forgive me. I'm drunk and an arse to boot. 
Oh, Sir Ralph, he is not the only handsome man I have ever seen, and I must accommodate him. He has been promised a room, but we have none, and yet I shall find a way. Oh, do not say it. Do not freeze my blood. Do you intend to give him your own room? To please you, I can give him a place in my wife's house. It is but a stone's throw away. But you yourself hate to pass time there. Philomena kissed his bald spot as she stood. Sir Francis Darrell commanded the hall, his great black cloak lending him authority. She noted the two chambermaids crouched in the corner, gulping eyefuls as they pushed dirty tankards around a table. Good sir. Her gown and carriage made him stand straight, even if he was not sure exactly who she might be. Mistress, he bowed. I come to welcome you. I am Mistress Philomena Arundel. This is my establishment. What a journey you have had. Let me offer you a drink. The two chambermaids ran off, pushing and whispering as they looked back. He bowed again. I was called here, to this very inn, by Sir George Wyatt. It is a kingly lodge. And what a fine night. Cold but bright. That is a fine night for travel. Every man I have met has been friendly, and the women, I cannot say, but let me say London delights me. Philomena marvelled at him. It was not one in a hundred travellers who arrived at the inn in such good spirits. Is Sir George Wyatt here? he inquired. Sir, that gentleman is not here, she indicated a servant to help him with his cloak. But I cannot turn away a traveller such as yourself. We must make up a room, and you will have dinner while you wait. He grinned, and she imagined a man with such a face was used to everyone smoothing the way for him. The chambermaids returned, each with a drink of wine, and he gamely took both, saying, My cup runneth over. The cloak pulled from his shoulder, and there, hanging about his neck, was the pomander. Philomena's smile ran off and her face fell blank. She could give nothing away. There it was, large, polished so it shone like the sun, suspended from a heavy linked chain. The weight of the thing must drag on him. The falcon, just as it had been drawn by Master Hans Holbein. Close up, she could see it had a haughty look. It was an arresting object. Sir Thomas's son was standing in front of her. She wanted to roar with triumph. Is my doublet askew, mistress? Sir Francis asked, showing one dimple. Philomena had to turn her head. Oh, sir, I am quite taken by the pomander you wear. It is such a thing as I have rarely seen, and with the herbs inside, it must always keep you well. He took it in his hand so she could fully appreciate it, and then these words dropped from his mouth. I wear it only for sentiment. I have not the key, so I have placed nothing inside. A quiver ran through Philomena's entire being. Yet how was she to get a moment to open the jewel? She could suggest he give it to her for safekeeping, or, since he seemed such a pleasant fellow, find some pretext to borrow it long enough to summon Constance to the inn with the key. She would wait, let him settle in, and then turn her mind to a plan. First she must install him at the inn. What a disaster it would be for him to take lodgings elsewhere. Rounding up a few of the distracted maids, she hurried to prepare her mother's room for the guest. Her mother's clothes, her favorite chair, Philomena felt obliged to remove them. The linen must be changed, the bed curtains as well. She sent for Falk and the tower, and they carried all of her mother's things to a storage room. She could see they felt it was a strange act, but they did as she asked, and by the end of the second hour the room was set. She went to find Sir Francis with prickly impatience. She would offer to keep the pomander in her own safe. She heard a laugh, a too perfect laugh, deep, hearty, a little lusty. 
Sir Francis was lodged at a table opposite Princess Cecilia. The wine had put them both in full rouge. Cecilia's bust flushed. His cheeks burned. Their lips were swollen, and they leaned in close. Every person in the room stole glances at this twosome. They were Adam and Eve before the fall. Fortune smiled, granting them both the temperament to be able to enjoy their beauty before their teeth dropped out and they returned to dust. It was obvious where the conversation would take them. To rush over and ask if she could house the pomander at this heated moment would not garner favour. They would look at her with their misted eyes, their tongues lolling in their mouths. She would bring them back to earth and they would despise her. Philomena sat herself down to wait. Cecilia's hands caressed the pomander, running her fingertips over the ridges. Darrell put his hands over hers, and together they stroked it, that old ploy. Could they not stand up and get on with it? Philomena was tired and wanted to get the jewel. They were nuzzling. Goodness, what a show! She would close her eyes to wait. When the chairs scraped, she would hop up and ask about safekeeping. The smell of blackjack woke her. She felt utterly confused. Why was she in the air? Where were her feet? I am carrying you up the stairs to your bed, dearest, Blackjack said. Put me down. Blackjack placed her on a stair, and she swayed for a moment. Will you scold me even for this? he asked, although she could see he was amused. I was busy. You interrupted me. Busy with your eyes closed? Alone in the room? I thought you might be dreaming of your mattress. I was not alone. Was I? Where did they all go? She was so angry at herself. Why had she let herself fall asleep? Fie on herself. She marched up the stairs. Her brain was mush. How was she to get the pomander? Could she go into Sir Francis's room now and take it? No. Her one attempt at thieving had led Sir Henry Lee right to her. If Sir Francis caught her, he would flee the inn. The pomander was just out of reach. Fie on it! She had to head off Sir Francis before he searched out George Wyatt's lodging. She would find a way in the morning. With such a heavy step, you will wake the house. I should indeed carry you, Blackjack insisted. And with that, he scooped her up. The pomander is almost in Philomena's grasp, and Cecilia is full of the fire of immortality. Well, maybe or maybe not, but there's no denying that Dillinoy did his best to create a convincing, magical, occultish, supernaturalish experience for our princess. Let's take a second and just put ourselves in Cecilia's place and break down how she would interpret all these ritualistic elements. Delanoy begins by creating a circle around the princess. <laughs> in alchemy, the circle is very important. It's called the transmutation circle. And it's supposed to create a field of energy around the object being transmuted so that all of the alchemist's energy can be focused on that one object. And in this chapter, that object is Cecilia herself, and that's how she likes it. And the elixir is in a clock because of the symbolic meaning of time, of stopping time and imbibing time itself to live forever. Burning sage is a ritual of purification. Burning sage also represents the earth, so it's one of the elements. And sage was also associated with courage in this period. The lad who gives Cecilia the elixir to drink, Angelo, is young. And Dillinois insists on his purity, his virginity, because the purity of the practitioner was thought to increase the strength of the alchemical process. 
Also, the presence of the moon coming through the window is extremely important. A critical part of the alchemical process is the mixing of sulfur and mercury. Sulfur is represented by the Red King, active, volatile, fiery. The White Queen represents mercury. Passive, fixed, and material. The union of the Red King and the White Queen represents the process uniting opposites to create a perfect union. And the Moon represents the King and Queen in their chemical wedding. So Cecilia doesn't know exactly what Delanois <laughs> is mumbling, but. It sounds very convincing to her, and it's a big event. Yeah, because she wants it to be. She is definitely buying into this whole production. Delanois would have had many sources available to him in 1565 to advise him on the proper rituals to make a convincing ceremony. A ceremony, yeah. There were many, many books on alchemy circulating among the intellectuals of Europe at this time. And a favorite saying of the Renaissance alchemists was, "One book opens another." I know that's supposed to be inspiring, but one book opens another actually just makes me feel extremely anxious. <laughs> <laughs> you don't feel inspired in a search for knowledge? No, it. I mean, it sounds a bit like falling down the rabbit hole on the internet. You know, as if there's never an end. You're just going to go from one link to another. There's never an answer, and it all just becomes very confusing. But actually, it did yield some practical outcomes in medicine and early chemistry, perhaps despite itself. We've talked a bit about it in a previous episode, and about how many intellectuals of the Renaissance humanist tradition were just fascinated by it. Yeah, unexpected people. Many of them monks, friars, bishops, even a saint. And lawyers, statesmen. As we've said, Lord William Cecil himself. Alchemy was considered by some to be the essence of Christian religious thought, because the whole idea of a base material transmuted to gold could be seen as a metaphor for the sinner being transformed into a person worthy of going to heaven. In the 16th century, alchemy was not considered in opposition to religion or to science. And breakthroughs in the understanding of chemistry, medicine, metallurgy, mining, all of those things came from alchemical experiments. But the ultimate elusive goal of alchemy, what Cecilia hopes Delanoy has achieved, the transmutation of a base metal into the philosopher's stone, that was always shrouded in mystery. Maybe because it was never achieved. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> And one of the most influential texts on this magnum opus or great work was, well, and it still is because you can buy a copy at your local bookstore. It's called The Emerald Tablet of Hermes. Which is a pretty enigmatic title in itself. I mean, what is The Emerald Tablet? Why is it emerald? <laughs> I know, it sounds kind of like a young adult fantasy novel. And it gets more fantastic. So this book is supposed to have been written by, let me try my Latin, Hermes Tresmegistus, or Hermes the Thrice Greatest. So he was a legendary figure of Greek origin and is probably kind of an amalgamation of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. The Emerald Tablet is a text which appeared in Arabic somewhere around the 8th century CE and was translated into Latin several times between the 11th and the 12th century. It was considered the basis of alchemy for Arabic alchemists 
and then for the medieval and early modern alchemists, including Sir Isaac Newton. And Newton is interesting because even though he's considered one of the greatest scientists of all time, he never lost his interest in alchemy. Newton considered the Emerald Tablet one of his most important inspirations. And Hermes, the thrice greatest... I love that name. I'm going to call myself Jessica the Thrice Greatest, was also supposed to be the author of a series of texts which came to be called the Hermetica, which lay out a philosophical system that came to influence early Renaissance Christian thinkers. Or maybe they just kind of liked this philosophical system and they somehow folded it into sort of Christian ideas. So this Hermes is thrice great, not just once. Yeah, no. And of course, the number three is a significant religious number. The Christian Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Exactly. And these Renaissance Christian philosophers picked up on that and declared that Hermes, the thrice greatest, envisioned the Trinity, and he was therefore a Christian prophet. Hmm. That's a bit of a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) Because there were also three fates in Greek mythology. It's all a big mix of classical and Christian ideas. And three is also an extremely important number for alchemists because alchemists believed in the three principles that all matter can be divided into salt, mercury, or sulfur. And there are three aims of alchemy. Purify, mature, perfect. This is a translation done by Sir Isaac Newton himself that was found with his papers after he died. And this will give you a little taste of the sort of enigmatic nature of this emerald tablet. Tis true, without lying, certain and most true, that which is below is like that which is above. And that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracle of one only thing. And as all things have been and arose from one by the meditation of one, so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation. The sun is its father, the moon its mother, the wind hath carried it in its belly, the earth is its nurse. The father of all perfection in the whole world is here. Its force or power is entire if it be converted into earth. Separate thou the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, sweetly with great industry. It ascends from the earth to the heaven, and again it descends to the earth and receives the force of things superior and inferior. By this means you shall have the glory of the whole world, and thereby all obscurity shall fly from you. Its force is above all force, for it vanquishes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. So was the world created. From this are and do come admirable adaptations, whereof the means is here in this. Hence I am called Hermes, Trismegist, having the three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. That which I have said of the operation of the sun is accomplished and ended. Wow. wow. Very <laughs> incantation-y. And, and enigmatic. <laughs> I mean, not contradictory of itself, but so complicated. And, and the language is kind of great, actually. It is. 
And our Cecilia would definitely mm-hmm. have read this. And that's why she understands the importance of the moon and the elements of water and fire in this ritual that she's taking part in. And she dresses herself as Venus. Her version of Venus, which would not have been a Greek robe, but a very elaborate 16th century gown and lots of very nice jewelry. And she likes to bring in the Egyptian element with Cleopatra and the ass. Because one of the other most important alchemical texts was said to have been written by the Greco-Egyptian alchemist Zosimos. These are great names. <laughs> Hermes the Thrice Greatest and Zosimos, I love them, which was probably written in the 3rd century CE because he was a metal worker who combined his knowledge of his craft with the philosophical ideas of alchemy. Some of his other writings are in the forms of letters to a woman who has, I believe, a very challenging name. It's <laughs> Theosabia, who may have been his pupil in alchemical matters. There were also women who were doing alchemical experiments in the Renaissance and early modern period, and one of these was named Marie Lejar. She was a correspondent and friend to Montaigne, and she actually edited his works after his death. She became an alchemist and got her own furnace and laboratory to use through her connections. And there was a woman who really made the most of it, and that was Isabella Cortese. She wrote an alchemical bestseller called The Secrets of Signora Isabella Cortese. (laughs) (laughs) That had a lot of practical information in it about how to distill water and how to make perfume, and she made a very big point of saying all other alchemical texts were wrong. BS. BS. They were wrong. These are kind of practical things, right? Water, perfume, things like that. So there were women who wrote very seriously about chemistry and alchemy. And of these, Marie Murdrach is probably the most famous. Again, excuse my French pronunciation. So she taught herself chemistry, Mm. and she would reproduce experiments that she had read about in order to learn. So she had a lot of get up and go. And she did try to communicate specifically with women. I mean, she even said that She would tutor them if they didn't want to try the experiments on her own. She really believed that women should not be excluded Mm -hmm. from this kind of learning. And she is a tiny bit later than Elizabeth, but it's important to note that there were women who were doing these kind of Mm -hmm. experiments. I don't think Elizabeth felt these things were beyond her grasp intellectually. I think she definitely considered herself, as they would say in the period, equal in mind to a man. And there were women out there saying that that was how it was. And Elizabeth certainly would have read a lot of these alchemical texts we've been talking about. She probably would have read the work of these other women because she was incredibly well-versed in what was going on at the time. And she really did have some faith in alchemy. Alchemy, it kind of gained its association with witchcraft and magic after the Enlightenment of the 18th century with the rise of empirical knowledge and scientific experiment. The Enlightenment scientists wanted to distance themselves from a practice that had become kind of suspect. I think the success of Ben Johnson's play The Alchemist in the 17th century must have been some really bad PR for a practice that in the Renaissance to the 16th century was considered a high art. The Alchemist was written in 1610 in the reign of King James I of England, and it tells the story of a group of servants who are left to run their master's house while he flees London because of the plague. Johnson is setting up this comedy where there's an element of misrule. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot in the last couple of episodes because the servants become the masters of the house and then all hell breaks loose. The servants devise ways to con people out of their money. And one of the main dupes is the super rich Sir Epicure Mammon, who seeks the Philosopher's Stone to help him increase his wealth, live forever, and of course, make astounding sexual conquests. 
That sounds exactly like what Cecilia has in mind in our chapter. <laughs> Mammon is taken in by the servant Subtle, who pretends to be an alchemist because he's very subtle. <laughs> there are other cons going on in the play, but the alchemist con is the most significant. And the play was incredibly successful. It was a massive hit for the king's men, as the company, formerly the Lord Chamberlain's men, were called. And it was played at court for King James. The fact that a play made such fun of alchemy, at the end of the play, the whole fake alchemical laboratory just blows up. Mm -hmm. Everyone always loves an explosion. <laughs> at the end. Then is now. <laughs> and it was received so well at court that it marks a real change from Elizabeth's court. Elizabeth herself was so interested in alchemy. And as we've said, Sir William Cecil was a believer. Sure. And so was the Queen's astronomer, Dr. John Dee. So alchemy went from being an intellectual interest to being demoted to the art of the con man in James's reign. Well, we'll leave it to you, dear listeners, to decide if Delanois is a con man or a magician. And immortal or not, Cecilia is going to have a very lusty night with the hunky Sir Francis Darrell. <laughs> Much to Philomena's annoyance because she just wants to get at that pomander. But that will have to wait until next time when we follow Sir Francis Darrell to Barnard's Inn to see his grouchy nephew, Sir George Wyatt. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Thank you.